Good morning all. Happy Lord's Day. We have a lot to do today. Um, I know we just uh, finished a little short series on the Holy Spirit, but we're going to go back to pneumatology on part two today. So just just uh, a little feedback uh, for me. Um, <clears throat> the the series on the Holy Spirit I did, I originally wanted to do, I don't know, 10 or 12 messages, and I cut it down to three, couldn't do it, tacked on an extra one uh, a couple of Sundays ago, um, if you recall. Uh, was that helpful to you at all, or do you think it was helpful to to be that brief, or um, what do you think? Tell me if it was helpful. Okay, I saw a thumbs up. Okay, well, that's good. Um, I'm very glad, because we're going to repeat a lot of that material right now. Um, that's what this is what the Lord plans, so you can blame his sovereignty um, for the fact that we're going to re-look at some of these things, but with probably a little more detail, actually. I don't know if we'll get to all of these topics today, because we're looking at, uh, continuing looking at the Spirit in the New Testament, and I want to um, spend a little bit of time on spiritual gifts. And so if we uh, don't have enough time, we'll just continue that next time. So today we're going to do a pneumatology part two, the spirit in the New Testament. We got started slightly a couple of weeks ago, but we'll um, continue now. So let's pray for a moment and then look at our Lord. Our Father, thank you uh, for this start to the Lord's day. How glorious it is to pause the rest of our lives and to simply meet with your people to begin to point our affections toward the cross of Christ, to point our hearts toward heaven, to be reminded, as we will be this morning, that the Spirit of God is ever present with us. Lord, I pray that this day would be a blessing to all who are here, that we would see this, Lord, very much as our Sabbath, not in the sense of a law, but in the sense of the the joys of gathering together for a day to rest in the Lord. Lord, I pray that this day would be pleasing to you, that it would be our offering to you in our listening ears, our changing hearts, our desire to humbly obey you. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We pray that this time would be useful to all who are listening and would be glorifying to you. Amen. All right. Um, I think I'm already kind of deciding that we might just take our time through this because I don't want to rush through these things. Um, those of you who are desperate to finish BTI, sorry, we'll, we'll do our best here. But I want to start with a question. Um, start with the baptism of the Spirit. But um, <clears throat> when you th- think of what the charismatic church describes as the baptism of the Spirit, um, no paragraphs, please, bullet points, what do you think of? What, what have you heard? What did you learn, maybe even grow up with? Yeah. Speaking in tongues. Okay, those two have to go together, right? What else do you hear? Ed, paragraphs, no paragraphs. <laughs> right. It's, it, 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 that's, that's the big one, that you, you become a Christian, and then the baptism happens. Um, if you're lucky, right. So there's the, there's the uh, as one of my pastors uh, when I was growing up said, there's the varsity Christians and the junior varsity. I saw a hand over here. Yes, Larry. A special dispensation. So kind of what Ed said, that if you're lucky, you're, yeah, it's something different. Um, more empowerment. So there are the weak Christians and then the powerful Christians because the, the weak ones are not baptized in the spirit. What else do you think of? Yeah. 
You need more faith. Well, I can tell you, you guys have been immersed in this. Yeah, you need more faith. And, and how do you get that faith? Well, you, you come up to the front and you have somebody lay hands on you and you pretend to speak in tongues and you, you generate it, right? What else? What else do you think of when you think of the baptism of the Spirit? Yeah, so sometimes you get uh, the extra added bonus of flopping on the ground um, and uh, uh, being slain in the Spirit. I remember my, my dad having this conversation with me. He asked me when I was little, have you been slain in the Spirit? I didn't know what he meant. I had no idea. And all he was going by was the theology that he grew up with. And thankfully, he outgrew it over time. And, and I'm thankful for that. Being slain in the Spirit. If you don't know what that is, that is uh, uh, one of many experiences that is generated psychologically in a so-called worship service. Uh, I wouldn't call it a worship service because when you're in the middle of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, I don't think we would call that worship. Um, <clears throat> and it's generated psychologically and emotionally. And look, social psychologists have known for decades and decades that you can get a whole group of people to do anything you want if you manipulate them properly. Um, you, if you've ever seen on, on YouTube or seen um, these giant uh, meetings that Benny Hinn has, he does this trick where he waves his hand and a whole, a whole section of a stadium, they all fall down. Well, there's a trick to that. Part of the trick is playing really loud music for about two hours um, and creating this expectation. There's also a psychological expectation that you don't want to be the one guy standing there looking around saying, this is dumb. You don't want to be that person. And so uh, baptism in the Spirit is massively misrepresented in the church today. You can't even say that phrase without all of these connotations that you just said coming forward. Well, what is the baptism of the Spirit? Well, first we see it presented in the New Testament by Jesus and John the Baptist. Matthew 3.11, Jesus is the baptizer. He is the one who does the baptizing. I baptize you with water for repentance. This is John the Baptist speaking. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We won't deal with the the fire part right now. Um, That generally is seen as having to do with judgment. That's a different issue. So what is the, the baptism of the Spirit? Well, or first of all, what is the means of baptism? The Spirit is the means of baptism. He is the one who is uh, baptizing. And remember, it's in, it helps us to understand that the word baptize simply means immerse. That's all it means. It, it, it doesn't go beyond that. Um, if you were speaking Koine Greek, uh, ancient Greek, you could take your small child into the bathtub and and dunk them under the water just for a second and say, I just baptized you. Not with, a, not with any spiritual sense, but just the fact that I immersed you in water. Um, it can also be used to be immersed in uh, <clears throat> something philosophical, to be immersed in an idea, to be immersed in a culture. And so it simply means to be immersed, to be completely part of something. And I think that'll make more sense in just a moment. This baptism is, is a contrast with John's water baptism of repentance. Mark 1.8, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
And then we see that the Spirit descended on Jesus first. John one thirty three. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is the means of the baptism, and Jesus is the one who does the baptizing. And so we haven't answered the question, what is the baptism yet? Then we see the apostles in the book of Acts. After the resurrection, the baptism of the Spirit is still future. That hasn't happened yet. What, why has it not happened yet? Because the church hasn't happened yet. Acts 8, 10, and 19. These are key passages in Acts 8. The Spirit comes to the Samaritans. Acts 10, the Spirit comes to Gentiles. And Acts 19, the Spirit comes to John's disciples. Then you have the Apostle Paul now in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. So that answers one question there. How many Christians are baptized in the Holy Spirit? All of them. Every single one. There's no such thing as a Christian who needs, quote unquote, more of the spirit. That's, that's ridiculous. How do you divide God? How do you divide a spirit? That, that makes no sense. A few other New Testament references. We are baptized into Jesus Christ, into his death. And by the way, there is a great correlation between water baptism and the baptism of the Spirit because uh, the symbol, the water, symbolizes what the Spirit does. He cleanses, he regenerates, he renews, and he also, what, what do we say that baptism is? Baptism is entrance into the church of Jesus Christ. And we've said this before, somebody cannot say, I want to join the church but not be baptized. Neither can they say, I want to be baptized and not join the church. The two are joined at the hip. And why is that? Well, our definition of the baptism of the Spirit helps us understand. The baptism of the Spirit refers to the placing of the believer into the body of Christ by means of the gift of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, again, all believers are baptized in the body of Christ. It's past tense for all believers. It's, it's not a subsequent action after salvation. So remember I said that it's helpful to us to understand that baptism simply means to be immersed, to become part of something. So when you're baptized in the Spirit, you become immersed in the body of Christ. You are part of the church of Jesus Christ. You're part of what theologians call the church universal what well, is the church universal? Every Christian who has ever lived anywhere during any time. So in that, by that definition, where is most of the church universal right now? In heaven. Yeah, you're in the minority. You're still alive on earth. Most of the church is in heaven uh, having received their reward already. So when you're baptized by the Holy Spirit, it means you have become immersed in the church. You were part of the church. This is why a, a professing Christian who says, uh, I, I want to live my faith as a solo Christian. I'm, I don't really need to be part of a local church. Well, I'm going to question their salvation because if you're immersed in the church by means of the indwelling and the baptizing of the Holy Spirit, then where do you want to be? Well, you want to be in the church. I, I don't ever recall waking up on a Sunday morning and going, oh, I got to go to the church today. No, we want to be with God's people. We want to um, be with the ones that are like us. Now, the, um, the references in the epistles illuminate the more ambiguous references in Acts. And why is that? The book of Acts is a transitional period. And that, you know, 
I think that's a very reasonable assumption to make uh, because you're talking about shifting from the old covenant to the new covenant and that doesn't happen overnight. God never makes big shifts in his dispensations uh, overnight. He, he, didn't, he didn't say, okay, uh, yesterday was old covenant, today is new covenant. There was a long transition. Now, I'll use one uh, person as an example. I have a question for you. Is John the Baptist an Old Testament prophet or a New Testament prophet? Answer carefully. Yes, exactly. He is both. He is both. Uh, he is an odd character. Uh, he, he didn't even hardly know what was going on because he was human. He announced the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the, the forerunner. He was the, the, uh, the herald. He was the torchbearer for Christ. And yet in Matthew uh, 11, John the Baptist is in prison and he sends word to Christ. Are you the Christ? Because, you know, what am I doing here in prison? Thought the kingdom was coming and, and all of those things. So he, even himself, didn't fully understand this transition. And so the book of Acts, you have the, the, this amazing instance of now the people of God indwelt by the Spirit of God. And it had to be proven to the Jews that, that the Spirit isn't just for them. It had to be proven to the Jews. And so you see the Spirit coming to the Samaritans and, and the Jews would, would let out a collective gasp. Seriously? And then to the Gentiles, that's even worse. And so there is a reasonable uh, set of reasons for Acts being the transitional period. Now, I've already mentioned this, but the New Testament water baptism is a symbolic act that pictures what has happened to the believer. We've been buried, we've been raised with Christ, and we become a member of the community of faith, the body of Christ, and we share in the gift of the Spirit of Christ. And so uh, water baptism is that tremendous symbol um, really, if you think about it, a genius symbol. It's absolute genius from the mind of God because it, it does so much. I like to tell the, the candidates for baptism, we usually stand in, in the office there, everybody in their bathing suits and t-shirts and towels, and, and it's a little embarrassing. To be baptized is a little embarrassing. You want to know why? Because you are publicly proclaiming I have died with Christ. I have died to myself and I am being raised with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Why is it a little embarrassing? Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you must take up your cross and follow me. You deny yourself. And so there is this sense in which you, yes, you are, arrive into the body of Christ with a sense of humility and degradation because that's how you got saved, wasn't it? Nobody comes to God with their head lifted high. You come to God with your head on the ground. And baptism symbolizes that, that we, we humble ourselves before the Lord. And we, uh, of course, you know, in our church, I'm thankful for this, but the culture here is that baptism Sunday nights are a glorious time because we've all been there. That's why I like to tell all those who are gathered, I say, look, half the people out here have been in this very room baptized here. And so um, it is a tremendous, tremendous symbol. But here is, I, I, I want to encourage you because in Bakersfield, California, I have noticed that charismaticism is alive and well. I, I wish it wasn't, but it is. It is just everywhere here. And this is an issue that you can really clear up quite easily. 
because the culture is that there are two classes of Christians, those without spirit baptism and those with spirit baptism. And you simply can take them to 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and read to them, what do you make of this? For in one spirit, we were all baptized. We were all made to drink of one spirit. What do you make of that? And simply ask them to interpret that verse according to normal rules of English grammar. And that's pretty hard to get away from. So there's the baptism of the Spirit. Before we move on from that, are there any, any questions or any um, yeah, questions you have about the baptism of the Spirit? I don't normally do questions in the middle, but I thought this is a big topic. So baptism of the Spirit. So yeah, David. Sure, yeah. Uh, infant baptism uh, is sort of a way of... Uh, how do you explain this? In, in the Roman Catholic religion, uh, salvation is not seen as something that happens at a point in time. Salvation is something that you desperately work for all of your life, and hopefully at the end of your life, you made it. If you didn't make it, then you get to spend some time in purgatory, and then you make it. Unless you committed a certain set of sins, then you're doomed for all eternity. So, first of all, that incorporates all kinds of fear, Right? You don't ever know whether you really made it. You got to go to the confession, got to go to the mass, you got to make sure and, and, and uh, take the Eucharist and all of that. And you got to keep all those things going. And so there's this giant heavenly scoreboard. And if you're a good Catholic, then your score is probably pretty good. And they would view salvation as sort of like a batting average that, you know, hey, if I'm batting 300, that's pretty decent. I, I'm okay with that. Um, biblical salvation views uh, salvation as you must bat 1,000 that you must be perfect as God is perfect. And we messed that up from the moment we were born. So back to infant baptism. Infant baptism is one of many, many ways that a Roman Catholic family tries to kind of short circuit the system and get a head start on the salvation of their children. And so it is seen as sort of a, a sealing event, as an event that doesn't cause salvation, but it sure helps uh, get you a, a head start along the way. And so, uh, unfortunately, infant baptism from Roman Catholicism carried over into the Reformation, and there's still a ton of reformers, uh, reformed Christians today, who still practice pedo-baptism, and we wouldn't hold to that because there's no example of that in Scripture whatsoever. Um, so, uh, yes, uh, infant baptism in the Roman Catholic Church is sort of like, uh, all right, you've checked this off your scorecard, and this is a big one. You know, this is uh, th- this is uh, sort of like getting. You know, some, some free uh, merit with God. Does that help? Is that, is that accurate? Okay. What are the questions about the baptism of the Spirit? Yes. Oh, for, okay. Um, so those who believe in infant baptism. So the difference between a Roman Catholic infant baptism and a Presbyterian infant baptism is that a, um, okay, are you talking about Reformed Presbyterians who actually believe the gospel or the, okay, because there's also the liberal Presbyterians that long ago abandoned the gospel. Um, So the difference is, is that uh, what I would say to our Presbyterian brothers is that it's nice that you gave your baby a bath in a public place, um, but that wasn't baptism. But they would also say that nobody gets saved outside the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, their, their understanding of the gospel is correct. It's just their timing of baptism is incorrect. So the difference between the 
Reformed Presbyterian and the Catholic is that the Catholic doesn't have a clue what the gospel is. The Reformed Presbyterian knows the gospel and understands it, just applies it uh, in a way that we would say is erroneous. So that's fine. Uh, a lot of people that we baptize right over here in our little Lego Baptist baptistry that we put together almost every one of them have gotten wet in a religious setting before. That's what I call it. You're not baptized, actually, until you're saved. And they say, well, I've been baptized three times. No, you got wet in front of a lot of religious people, but that's, that's it. So that's almost every time. This is not their first time in the water. So uh, my wife uh, grew up in the Methodist church, and she loved her dogs, and so she sprinkled her dogs and baptized them to make sure that they would go to heaven when she was like five years old. Um, and so she, her joke is, not only did I baptize dogs, but I didn't even do it right because it's uh, b- supposed to be by immersion, and they wouldn't have liked that. So, <laughs> Any other questions? I digress. Baptism of the Spirit. I just want to make sure I never assume... How many of you here claim to be believers in Christ? How many of you here claim to be baptized in the Spirit? Keep your hands up. (laughs) Point made. All right. Indwelling of the Spirit. This is such an exciting doctrine. You think about this. You think about that in the Old Testament. To be in the presence of God, you had to travel And I'm not talking about the omnipresence of God, not saying that God wasn't present everywhere, but I mean to be meaningfully, worshipfully, uh, and in a relationship presence with God. You had to travel somewhere. You had to have a priest. You had to make a sacrifice. You had to do all kinds of things. Um, There are several Psalms that talk about longing to be in the sanctuary of God so that they could be in the presence of God. The indwelling of the Spirit changed all of that. Where is God meaningfully? He is always where you are. How do you go to church? Get a few believers together and worship God. You're in church, quote unquote. So let's look at the language of indwelling. This is worth uh, reading. Romans 8, 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. By the way, there's another great verse. Oh, you don't have the Spirit? Well, you're not a Christian. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Now, Let's, what I want to point out here is the language of indwelling. This word dwells. It uh, is related to the same word for house in Greek. That the Spirit is in your house. And you look at other places in the New Testament. What does uh, the Apostle Paul sometimes call your body? Your tent or your house? And so the Spirit has come to your house. Now think about that from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you went to God's house. In the New Testament, the Spirit has come to your house. What a a tremendous privilege. Paul says one is in the Spirit if the Spirit is in him. Having the Spirit is contrasted with being in the flesh. He says that if if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't have Christ. 
So no one can say, I'm a Christian, I just haven't received the Spirit yet. You can't say that. Romans 8, beginning of verse 9, all the way through verse 17. You were not of the flesh, and the implication then is that don't live as if you are. I, I think there's not enough teaching on the indwelling Holy Spirit. Um, imagine this. <clears throat> Some of you had strict dads. And they serve a purpose. A strict dad serves a purpose because there's always a piece of him that is sitting on your shoulder. You can be, you can be 50 years old and still wonder what your dad might think about what you're going to do. That's the way we're built. If we would remember that the Holy Spirit representing God the Father, representing God the Son, is with us all the time. And that knowledge was so ever-present. How many secret sins would be eradicated? Because there's no secrets from the Spirit of God. You can lie. I've had people in this church lie right to my face when I've confronted them on sin because I already know the facts because I'm not dumb. I don't confront somebody unless I know exactly what's already happened. I've had them lie to my face with a smile and walk out of my office fully convinced that they fooled me. doesn't matter whether they fooled me or not. They didn't fool the Lord. They did not fool the Lord. If we would teach on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we would be terrified of the sins even of our mind. And we would confess, Lord, I'm sorry for those thoughts that I just entered into the house that we share. I'm sorry for the mud I traipsed into the mind that you indwell. So I think it's a tremendous thing for us to remember. Fabulous passage here, still in the language of indwelling. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 19. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Verse 19 of chapter 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Same language, dwelling in the house. The analogy here is God's temple, the place where God is uniquely present. Now, little little note here. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. That's a plural pronoun. He's talking to the church now. Not only does the Spirit indwell you, but the Spirit is indwelling the church, which only makes sense because the church should be filled with people indwelt by the Spirit. Which is why in Matthew 18... 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, Titus 3, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2. There are all kinds of references to purifying the body of Christ from those who say I have the Spirit, but I don't because they don't belong. They need to either repent or, or not be part of the body because they're not part of the body. Do we welcome uh, people who say, hey, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian, but I just want to hear the gospel all day long? What does Paul say you do with somebody who says, hey, I'm a brother, I'm just not going to live like one. You say you don't associate with them because they're living as if they don't have the spirit because they probably don't. And so um, we are, as a corporate body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we don't traipse mud into God's temple if, if at all possible. 2 Timothy 1.14, still under the language of the indwelling. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. There's an emphasis here on the enabling power of the the present spirit. And now you have, this is interesting to me, corporate and individual elements are presented by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, the church, guard the good deposit entrusted to you, singular, to Timothy. And so you have the church filled with individuals who are indwelt by the spirit. 
So what can we conclude from the, the language of the indwelling of the Spirit? There's a distinction between believer and non-believer, and that distinction quite simply is the indwelling of the Spirit. There is nobody who is part way to Christ. There is nobody who is part way to the cross. Now, I understand that there is a spiritual journey that takes place, but nobody is partly Christian. Nobody is sort of part of the body of Christ. Nobody is uh, close, but no cigar, so to speak. You're either in the spirit or not. Jude verse 19 says, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. Devoid of the Spirit. Another conclusion, the presence of the Spirit is the basis for right living. We already saw this in 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? You are not your own. What's that go on to say? You have been bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself. Why can the Holy Spirit indwell you? Because He owns you. You move into a house that you have purchased. And so your body, your personhood is a purchased vessel. It is that you don't own yourself. He does. Another conclusion, the indwelling presence of the Spirit is not a variable. It's not variable. It's a, it's a constant fact. I, I'm, always, I'm always amazed when I see those who have been taught that the Spirit of God is variable, that if you're being good, the Spirit is with you. If you're being bad, the Spirit is not with you. I'm always amazed when you just go to a couple of verses that say you always have the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit dwells in you, the the burden that is lifted. You mean even when I'm sinning, the Spirit is with me? Yeah, he's not happy, but he's with you and he's convicting you. Why do you think you feel bad for your sin? If the Spirit wasn't with you, you'd love your sin, but you hate your sin because you're, you're living right next door to the Spirit. And so it's not variable. When you got saved... You were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we said this a couple of Sundays ago. You will be indwelt by the Spirit for all eternity. All eternity. And imagine what that's going to be like when there's no sin coming between you. There's no grief of the Holy Spirit. There's no grieving the Spirit. There's no resisting the Spirit. There's no quenching of the Spirit. What's that going to be like? Joel chapter 2 tells us that your young men and old men will see visions and dream dreams because all of your thoughts will be saturated in the Spirit. Somebody comes up to you and says something, you will always believe the best. Always. And then one more conclusion, the indwelling of the Spirit is a distinct and unique benefit of the new covenant. It is the Spirit of Christ who indwells, Romans 8, 9. The indwelling comes with being in Christ. How is it that Paul says dozens and dozens of times, about a hundred times in the New Testament, you're in Christ, in Christ, in Christ? Because the Spirit of Christ is in you. How can you not be in Christ? And you see the temple imagery is used as a comparison in the New Testament in contrast with the Old Testament temple. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God dwelt outside men. In the New Testament, the Spirit of God dwells inside men. And the Spirit indwells the body of Christ corporately and individually. We've already, already seen that. So, any questions on the indwelling of the Spirit? I've kind of told you everything I know. It's a, it's a, we said this a Sunday or two ago. The study of the Spirit of God is glorious and yet it is mysterious, isn't it? How do you explain that God is living in you? I mean, you're, you know, what, 5'10", and the God who made Mars dwells in your body. 
How is that possible? How is it possible that when you sin, the Spirit of God doesn't depart from you because He is a covenant-keeping God and He will never leave you or forsake you even to the end of the age? Yes, Julie. I'll see if I know how. Yay, okay. Did I say one? So the slide was wrong and I was correct. All right. Um, that's good. Thank you for that. And I don't have a person who's correcting those, so I'm going to make a note to myself. I don't even have a pen. You know what? The Lord will know. Um, <laughs> that's the way it goes. I'll try to remember that this week. If somebody sends me an email, that'll be great. You should see all the mistakes we've gotten out of the slides by now. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Yes, Rebecca. The, okay. Yes. Okay. The move of the Spirit. I will tell you everything I know. Moving on to the next slide. <laughs> now, okay, there, let's put this into two categories. And this is like an ordination exam. Let's put this into two categories. There's the charismatic version of the move of the Spirit. And the move of the Spirit in the charismatic version is measured how? By emotion. It's measured by how I feel. Or it's measured by something that's visible. Well, brother so-and-so, he finally spoke in tongues. We've been praying for this for eight years. The Spirit really moved. No, he got sick of feeling like a junior varsity Christian and decided to just do what everyone else was doing. And so in charismatic circles, when you say the Spirit is moving, don't listen to that. That's It's bogus. It's emotion. It's... Uh, Ed and I have had this talk many times. Well-trained musicians can manipulate the emotion of a room very easily, very easily. There's this thing called a modulation. When you change from one key to a higher key, you know what happens in the room full of charismatics? Everybody's hands go up. Yep, that's right. Yeah, yeah, all of our former. Uh, yeah, so it, the hands go up. We call them recovering, recovering Pentecostals, that's right. What about the move of the Spirit in our circles, how do we measure the move of the Spirit? We measure the move of the Spirit the same way the book of Acts does. Many were being added to their number day by day. You measure the move of the Spirit by people coming to faith in Christ. You measure the move of the Spirit by increased obedience to the Spirit of God. I've had uh, spouses say to me, the Spirit is moving in my home because my husband is so kind to me. And so it's measured now by a biblical measure, uh, looking at Scripture as the measure, not by an emotional, subjective measure. So the book of Acts uh, technically is called the Acts of the Apostles. Some have suggested it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because you measure the moving of the Spirit by means of uh, what is happening in the church. Has the Spirit moved in our church in the last year? I would have to say yes, because we can't keep up with the number of new members who are wanting to come to membership class and so forth. Um, and in retrospect, we say that's clearly a move of the Lord. Yeah, Ed. I just want to mention, I attended a Minihan service many, many years ago. I purposefully sat and had the sound board, and noticed that two of the dials, a left and a right, were labeled Holy Spirit. And literally, when, when those moves happened, Bring it back down. There were subwoofers planted throughout the entire place. And it was the move of the 
a, a, a dial called the, the Holy Spirit. Wow. Does that sort of answer your question a little bit? So it, I, I think when we say the move of the Spirit, well, you, you measure movement of anything, and, and movement of the Spirit is not measured by emotion, how you feel. Uh, the move of the Spirit is measured by what the Spirit is doing that you can, that you can see. Amen, that you can see. Any other questions on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? All right. Let's move on to the filling of the Spirit. This gets even uh, more interesting because now we get into some uh, mischaracterizations even in our circles. In Luke and Acts, you have a a term used here, pimple me. It's used in Acts 1, or Luke 1, rather, Acts 2, 4, 9, 13. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, 4. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What does this mean? Well, this is very similar to the Old Testament. There's a special empowerment for a specific purpose. And very often, there's an unusual manifestation. Can you take Acts 2.4 and say that's normative for today? No. What's one reason we know this? Well, they also had, this is speaking of the apostles, not 120 people, the apostles. They also had tongues of fire sitting on their head. I've never seen that. That's never happened since. And so that particular instance is not for the New Testament believer. All those instances um, that are listed with this particular term are associated with the transitional events of the book of Luke and the book of Acts, both written by uh, Luke. Then you have another term, pleres. It's used in Luke 4, Acts 6, and I have some, some of the other references up there, a couple other references Acts 6, 3, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. What does this mean? Well, these are picking out some men to serve in the church, Stephen and and the others. It means that their disposition is characterized by the Spirit's control. They're They're not restricted to a specific task or ministry. The emphasis is on their relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is kind of helpful to us because this lays a foundation for the kind of filling taught later in the epistles. And so what does it mean to be filled with spirit? Well, let's keep putting this together. In the Pauline epistles, what is evidence? There's evidence of fullness. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. Now, I want to just pause right there for a moment. That is our key text on being filled with the Spirit. Ironically, it is a fairly disputed text, and you don't want to base a whole doctrine of being filled with the Spirit on that particular text. I said this a week or two ago. What is the context of Ephesians 5.18? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? The context is hearing the Word of God in the gathered people of God. Because the parallel passage in Colossians 3 says to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's, it's the same parallel passage. Talk about that in a moment. We also see that this means wise and righteous living. Ephesians five fifteen through 17, right before verse 18. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so being filled with the Spirit has to do with wisdom, has to do with righteousness. How do you find out what's wise? How do you find out what is righteous? By going to the word of God, of course. 
And then as I already just mentioned, it's, uh, the evidence is also in grateful corporate worship, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then you move on from there. There is uh, the, all the admonitions to sound relationships in the family and in the workplace. That has to do with being filled with the Spirit. And as I already mentioned, there's an emphasis on the word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So, and then right after that, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So being word-filled and spirit-filled are inseparable elements. They're inseparable Now, does this mean that you can have moments of not being filled with the Spirit? Yes. If you're making a rebellious decision to disobey the Word of God at that moment, you are not a person filled with the Spirit. Don't misconstrue that as indwelling. You are always indwelt with the Spirit. Let me put it to you this way. Don't raise your hand because I know all of you would. Have you ever gotten in an argument with your spouse? Yes. Does that mean that at that moment you're not married? No, it means you're married, you're just not as happy about it at that moment. But you're still married. The indwelling of the Spirit is the marriage, so to speak, of the Christian with God. But if there's a problem, if you're deciding to do things that are contrary to the Word of God, contrary to the will of God, then there's, there's a lack of fellowship. There's not a filling. You are not filled with what the Spirit would have you to do. And so we want to be real clear about that. One of my favorite stories about that, um, Pastor Stuart Briscoe, one of the greatest preachers who never took a single seminary class in his life. Tremendous preacher, though. He was teaching on the Holy Spirit, and an older lady who had come out of a Pentecostal church came up to him, and he said, she said, uh, Brother Briscoe, are you filled with the Spirit? Of course, meaning have you been baptized in the Spirit and all that. And he looked at her and he said, well, I was because he was irritated that she came and asked that question and he knew that his irritation was sin and he was in a state of sin at that moment because of her stupid question. So can you be filled with the Spirit all the time? Give it your best shot. And how do you, how do you be filled with the Spirit? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Dwell in you richly. So a couple of conclusions. Being filled with the Spirit is an issue of control. That's what it is. Who or what is controlling you? For the individual, it's a question of yieldedness. So there's, there's no emphasis here on seeking after or asking for the filling as a one-time event. You will never see, as long as I stand in this pulpit, you will never see us at Grace Bible Church say, come up front if you would like to be filled with the Spirit. You will hear us say, come and be saved. Then you'll be filled with the Spirit in terms of indwelling. But the, being filled with the Spirit is not a one-time event. It's evidenced in the obedient and maturing community of believers. Being filled with the Spirit is a variable. The indwelling and baptism of the Spirit are single salvation events with permanent consequences. So it is reasonable to ask yourself, am I acting this moment, am I thinking this moment as one who is filled with the Spirit? And if you're not sure, then go to the Word of God and compare your actions and your thoughts to what the Word of God says, and that will tell you. That will tell you. 
So I think I want to uh, kind of halt right there. I'll take a few questions, but next time around, we're going to talk about the gifts of the Spirit. That's such a huge topic, and I know a lot of you have come out of uh, systems where there's confusion around the gifts of the Spirit, and uh, so I want to take some time on that, and we'll take some time especially on uh, the miraculous gifts, and why do we not believe in those? Are we just the more boring Christians? Is that why we don't believe in them? Um, We believe in miracles, Absolutely, we just don't believe in miraculous gifts. Or as uh, Chuck Swindoll said once very simply, uh, he said, we believe in healing, we just don't believe in healers. You don't need them. So we'll talk about that next time. But any questions or comments about what we've done just today so far? Yeah, Ed. That's okay, I know this is passionate for you. Yeah. And yet, when there was anything in the service of any importance, the pastor would look at the congregation and say, those of you that are filled with the Spirit, come forward. We need to pray for so-and-so. We need to pray for so-and-so. And it, even as a young child, it troubled me that my parents were considered in that elite, you know, varsity versus, you know, it, it just bothered me. And what a freedom it is to realize what is true gospel and what it means to Absolutely. I, I remember when Ed turned in his uh, Holy Spirit essay. It was fear and trembling, and, and, and it was. A, it, it was. It was. I remember that. Let me be very clear. There are precious, precious, charismatic brothers and sisters who know Christ despite their leadership, who know Christ despite the false teaching, who know Christ despite the weirdness and the. The, the nutsiness of uh, everybody come up front and if you don't know how to speak in tongues, start saying, I should have bought a Honda, but I got a Hyundai instead, you know, and keep saying that or say banana over and over again. And yet the spirit of God still moves and saves people, which is miraculous. Let me pluck you out of something that has no bearing on the gospel whatsoever and still save you. So where should we point our concern? We point our concern at, at the leader's in the charismatic church, because they bear a great responsibility. They will stand before God and they will, they will be responsible according to James 3, 1. Those who are saved, I think most of them probably aren't, but those who are saved will stand before God and he will, he will say, why did you not point them to the cross? Why did you point them to a misconstrued idea of me? Why did you point them to an idolatrous view of me? And so, well, I love it. Anytime, anytime somebody new comes and they say, well, I, I come from another church. Which one? Pentecostal church down the street, welcome. Because the truth is going to clean your soul in ways you've never imagined. And you're going to find out from the moment you came to faith, you were always varsity. You always were. And then it'll blow your mind when you find out that from before the foundation of the world, you were chosen to be varsity. Then it'll blow your mind that Before the foundation of the world is a phrase that is given to us as human beings because we can't understand that there was never a time when God had not chosen you for salvation. 
There was never a time where you were not destined to become formed into the image of Christ and to receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There was never a time where you weren't destined to enter into the new Jerusalem as a citizen of the kingdom of Christ and see God in all of his glory with every other Christian in all of their glory and live on an earth that is an absolute glorious version of this broken down world there was never a time when that wasn't your destiny. <laughs> How do you do that? Isn't that better than, I should have bought a Honda. Isn't that better than some little emotional experience because you had a really good drummer and a bass player who knew how to make you feel an emotion for five minutes? So much better, so much better. We praise God for the Spirit, don't we? We praise God for Him. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the glory that you have imparted to us, how sinful we are, how dirty and degraded we are living in this world, living in our flesh that is still beset by sin. And yet in graciousness and kindness, the Spirit of God who now owns us by the blood of Christ has moved in And he's begun cleaning house. And he's begun leading us, convicting us. When we sin, we know it and we feel bad because the Spirit tells us in our heart. When we do that which is right, we have a sense of joy and accomplishment because the Spirit of God places that in our hearts. When we read the Word of God, it jumps off the pages as if it is alive because of the Spirit of God who wrote the Word. When we gather together, as the people of God, we are like the men on the road to Emmaus. Did not our hearts burn within us as he talked to us, by the way? As the word of God is opened, as we fellowship, as we sing the hymns of the faith, the spirit of God enlivened within us, creates in us such joy and delight, desire for you, that it makes us long to leave this world. It makes us long to be rid of the barriers of our sinful flesh and the barriers of the sin all around us and that will happen someday in the meantime we do ask that we would spend more and more of our moments filled with the spirit letting the word of christ dwell in us richly that we might be gracious and kind and loving as our heavenly father is and most importantly that we might be holy as god is holy we thank you and praise you for the holy spirit amen